Good morning. It has been fun to be here this weekend, um, and I've really considered it a privilege. Uh, it's it's been a uh, it's been a delight to meet some of the couples and some of the families, and and to talk with you about how our lives might uh, make a difference. But with all that, just uh, I've got to tell you, I was really nervous in the first sermon, the first session, the first uh, sermon, because. Um, it's such a beautiful place. And as I heard the music and the violin and the choir, I thought, what am I doing preaching here? And it's just really beautiful. It's just, it, was, it was enjoyable to be invited into worship by your, by your community and be with you this weekend. So with that, a quick introduction to the topic I'd like us to address, and then I'd like us to pray together. Now, I want to tell you, I work at a seminary, and I'm around a lot of good theologians. uh, John Frame is right down the hall, and I think I give up 25 IQ points every time I talk to him. Uh, There's there's Scott Swain and and, and all these brilliant, brilliant writers. Bruce Walkey has worked there, and and they bring in all these great theologians. One of your old pastors has been one of the leaders at RTS, Rick Canada, and, and, and he was... Just brilliant people that are way above my pay grade when it comes to smarts, but they're not the best theologians I know. Sometimes if you go back in history, you can find some great theologians, and if you'll read some of those great scholars of old, you'll say, there's some really great stuff that's been written um, that echoes into eternity that's just rich material. But those aren't the best theologians I know either. I'd like to introduce you to the finest theologian I know. Now, what's interesting is he's, he's never written a book. And after today, you'll never hear from him probably again. You won't recognize his name. But he's taught me so much about our God. And that theologian would be Schuyler Cofield. Go ahead and Google that name. Um, He's my 26-year-old autistic son. And he has taught me so much about faith and sacrifice and doubt and anger and beauty and, well, all the important things that theologians ought to know. Well, let, let me tell you a quick story, what I mean. And then, in just a minute, just like a psychologist, just like a professor, I'm going to tell you you have a disease that you didn't know you had. And then I'm going to tell you the cure of that disease, but that you didn't even know you had until this morning. And then we'll celebrate how God has dealt with that disease before we leave. I think that makes for a great Sunday morning together. But before we go there, let me just tell you a quick story. My son, Skylar, and I ride a tandem bicycle. I don't know if you've ever seen these things. They're really long. And if you've got marriage problems, you don't need to see a marriage counselor. Just ride a tandem bike together. Because one person's pedaling and one person's steering. If you can do that for two miles, you'll make it. Um, It is a goat rodeo. I mean, it is the work. It is just incredible. And so my son, he can't balance very well. That's part of his his autism. He's kind of forever seven in his mind. And and, so, and, there's, and he has a hard time physically crossing the midline and some kind of some physical issues. So he doesn't balance really well. So for him to ride a bike, it's got to be 
someone's got to be with him. So we ride this tandem bicycle, and we look pretty foolish on that thing. I mean, just two big old guys on this on this bike around Orlando. Well, as you know, Orlando really isn't land. Orlando is really just a sandbar that is eventually going to just float back into the sea. And so there's sand everywhere. And so one Saturday afternoon, we're riding our bike, and the back wheel hits a, a, a pothole with some sand, and it starts to slide out. So now you get the picture, this big bike, two big guys, the momentum starts to shift, and the bike starts to go. Well, once Skylar falls off this bike, he's never riding it again, because he doesn't do change very well. So at that moment, I went into kind of father mode. We've got to keep this bike up. And so I jump off the seat, and I'm kind of straddling the seat as best I can, and, and, and the bike is still moving, and I'm trying to catch up with the bike and try to hold it up, and it, it goes over to the left, and I overcorrect, and it falls over the other side. He's leaning the wrong way because he doesn't kind of naturally have that sense inside of him of how to lean when things are starting to go with momentum. So he's messing up the momentum. He's kind of leaning toward the, the crash, and I'm trying to pull him off, and then when I pull it over the other way, he then... He then leads far too far the other way, and we're back and forth, back and forth, and finally we come to an end. And the bike comes to an end. We didn't fall. And my knuckles are just, you know, white. I'm just sitting there. And I take a deep breath, and I look back, and there's Skylar. He's got his hand clenched. And he says, don't you ever do that to me again. And I said, okay, and we, we start to ride on home. And then what I think is probably the most profound thing I've ever learned in my life took place on that short ride home. I thought about me and the way I deal with God. And I thought about the way that God has held me up my whole life. And I feel of the way that I've kind of pushed against God and how God is taking me on this journey that I couldn't even be on if it wasn't for him. And I don't even know how to lean the right way half the time. And I'm often getting in the way and I'm, and I'm, and as soon as things don't go the way I want, as soon as things start to get a little more difficult than I want, as soon as things don't line up the way that I hope they would be, I clench my fist and say, God, why do you make it so hard? God, why do you do this to me? And as I'm riding my bike with Skylar back home, I realize I have spiritual autism. That I, my mind, if, if Skylar's mind is here and my mind is here, my mind is here and God's mind is here. And I don't understand much of what takes place in my life. He's holding me up. He's sustaining me. He is protecting me. And I'm just livid that it hasn't worked out the way that I hoped it would. And I'm focusing on how uncomfortable it is and he's sustaining me. Now, I'm not too embarrassed that I have spiritual autism because I think you have it too. 
And what I'd like us to explore this morning is what are the signs of spiritual autism? What God might want to do to redeem it? And then maybe what it would be like if we took him seriously that he wants our lives to reflect his good work. So before we go any further, before we read his word and before we talk about him any longer, let's talk to him. Let's pray together if we could. Let's pray. Father, good Father, thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the privilege to stand here today with your sons and daughters with your children and talk about how you how you love us how you are a great redeemer Father you know every person in this room you know the people that are doing well and the people that are just hanging on you know the person struggling with doubt you know the person that just drugged themselves in today the fights on the way here. You know everything in this room, every story. And so now would you meet us here? Would you leave no stone unturned in our lives as you pursue and move into our soul? Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this time in your word to disrupt them. For the people whose lives are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? We pray in the powerful, powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, autism has basically three broad uh, symptoms, if you will. Now, now they talk about autism as a spectrum, that 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 it can be a lot of, it can be some level, you can have some of these things, but these are the three symptoms that clinically they'll talk about. The first would be a poor ability to deal with relational reciprocity or community or connecting with community, connecting with others. Second would be poor communication and poor uh, developmental delay. Third would be what they call stereotypical and repetitive behavior, a fancy way of saying they get focused on things that don't matter and do them anyway. They kind of get obsessed with, with things over and over again. And so that day when I, when I realized that I treat God the same way Skylar treats me, with my hand so often clenched. So often one hand is grabbing on him because he's all I have, and sometimes the other hand is clenched saying, why? And that's such a picture of Skylar. He needs us so much. And sometimes he's so frustrated. And as I think about this autism, I, I started thinking about those three symptoms, and I thought, well, that's the symptoms of the church. That's the symptoms we all live that we typically don't do very well with community. We typically don't do very well with communication. 
And we often get lost in activities and behaviors and things that don't matter. And I thought, we really are spiritually autistic. And then I thought, well, I wonder how God would want to redeem each of those. And so I'd like us to look at a passage where Jesus and his disciples come up on somebody who's got a disability. And then I'd like us to then talk about how he might, and, and look at the principle that would come from that passage. And then I'd like us to just think together for just a few minutes about what it would be like for each of those areas to be redeemed in our lives personally, in our marriages, in our families, and in our church. So with that as the game plan, um, let's, let's get started. Let's look together at, um, in, the, in John. The passage I'm going to look at is just the, the very familiar passage that in John 9. And it says this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither the man or his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, I've got a couple of quick sidebars I want us to look at from this text. But in a moment, I want us to come back and focus on the idea of, of, of what it would be like for the work of God to be displayed in our lives as spiritually autistic people. What would it be like if God redeemed us in that way? But first, there's just a couple of things you've got to notice from the text that, that are just really interesting. The first is just notice the way that Jesus, as he was going, noticed someone. So much of Jesus' ministry took place in the normal every day. And I think if we're going to be a little more serious about our faith, we need to put a little more spiritual in our normal or a little more normal in our spiritual. What I mean by that is that a lot of times we do spiritual things, like we come to church and we talk about spiritual things, and then we go do our normal lives. We've got a lot of friends that we don't talk about our faith with. And it seems like the way Jesus interacted in his world is everything was spiritual. And so every moment was pregnant with the possibility of eternity. Every interaction, every relationship. The woman at the well was an opportunity to engage someone with her soul, that there was a chance for a conversation that was important everywhere, and that somehow in Jesus' normal, on-his-way sort of times had the potential for spiritual engagement. If we really believe in the sovereignty of God, and that is one of the pillars of our faith, then we have to believe that the moments along the way are significant because a sovereign God is, is setting those up. And so that the random person we bump into is not a random person we put into, but a character that we might meet along the way. This blind man was just a person along the way that Jesus noticed. How often I'm so busy that I miss everything along the way. So the first thing I would want you to note, if we're going to be stepping to, 
to, to be more like this redeeming God who loves us and has called us, is that we need to put a little more spiritual in our normal or a little more normal in our spiritual. Meaning we need to be aware of the divine possibilities along the way. The way we talked about this, that, the way we talked about that this weekend was that we said that God has a way of taking ordinary and making it sacred. That an ordinary, an ordinary conversation or an ordinary moment when along the road becomes an important moment that echoes into eternity. And that theme is clear through Scripture. A nomad becomes the father of the nations. A shepherd becomes the witness to the incarnation. A, a barn becomes a, a stable, and a bar, or a barn becomes the place where Jesus comes into this earth. A fisherman become apostles. Mere bread and wine become the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. God has a way of taking ordinary, making it sacred. He takes our ordinary lives. He doesn't just say you're special. Because if everything's special, nothing's special. He says, you're my beloved. You're sacred. And what that does is that allows every moment to count. So it's it's, the first thing I want you to notice in the text is notice that Jesus... Notice someone along the way. Second thing, that notice that Jesus noticed. I think the battle as you get older is with cynicism. It sure has been my battle. I think as you get older, you can either choose between cynicism or vulnerability. And, and cynicism, in cynicism you often say, oh, God's not that interested God doesn't really care about me. And what we start to do is we start to do a little bit of a dance intellectually where we say, I think it's true, it's just not true for me. And we live our Christian life and we'd fight people to to say, I believe in the faith, I believe in the Bible, I believe in... And we'll 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 talk about our faith in, in significant ways. But sometimes it almost feels like we're showing people vacation photos of somebody else's vacation at the Grand Canyon. I mean, we know the Grand Canyon's there. We know that it's real. We know that it was a real vacation. We know they really went on it, and we're showing it. It's just not our vacation. And sometimes what happens in, in our lives along the way, when cynicism starts to work in, we start to believe that he's really not that interested. And I guess I would just want you to notice from the text that kind of a side note is not only did this amazing moment happen when they were just walking on the way that it was Jesus is the one who noticed the blind man. It was Jesus is the one who noticed the one that others would have just passed by. It was Jesus who noticed the one that others paid little attention to. It's Jesus who notices you in your life and that that matters to him. Last side note in this text, and then we'll just go, then we'll focus on that idea of what 
what God wants to do with the things that are wrong with us. Just notice the wrong questions that the disciples seem to ask. Don't we all sometimes ask the wrong questions? So they're walking along the way. Jesus notices this blind man. They evidently see Jesus notice and give dignity to this blind man. And so they decide, not how do I care for him, but let's have a theological conversation about him. Whose sin caused this problem? Not, Not a bad thing to wonder, I guess. So often we tend to focus on secondary instead of the primary things. So the disciples note their their tendency to ask the wrong question. Now you need to be aware theologically that Jesus in this passage does not, uh, he doesn't say that people's sin doesn't cause judgment at times. That's he does not deny that that sometimes happens. He also doesn't deny the idea of original sin, the idea that there was sin that caused that since that's not what is, you know, those things are not, those important doctrines are not thrown out in this passage by any means. But clearly the disciples seem to be focused on something that Jesus wanted to focus on something else. And Jesus' response was, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, But this happened, please let's focus on this. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So that the glory of God could be seen by the way you live your life. The struggles, the sorrows, and they're real. Christianity doesn't say tragedy is not tragedy. To call, as people who believe in redemption, when we say God is a redeemer, that does not mean we're saying that bad things aren't hard, being blind isn't hard, or having suffering isn't hard. We're not saying that. That's silliness. Trauma is trauma. But we're saying... That's not the end of it. Who was it that said, if you want a good ending, you've got to be careful where you stop the story? God would say, you don't stop the story of this boy being born blind. You stop the story after, in spite of the blindness, the works of God are seen. Now, in this story, they're directly seen by healing. But they could also have been seen by him living in a different way in spite of his blindness. You see, God wants you and I not to pretend that hard things didn't happen. That's not biblical. We're to minimize things. He wants the world to know that he can redeem, do something of great value, even with the hardest of things. Now, I don't know what you're going through, but I know a lot of you are hurting in this room. I know some of you really are struggling. Some of your families are barely hanging on. Some of you have got bad news about health. 
Some of your finances are just a shambles. And if the disciples showed up here, they'd say, well, whose sin caused that? And that's not a bad question to ask sometimes, I guess. But I think Jesus would, not, would say, yeah, that is hard where you are right now. But it's there now so that my good work, so my glory can be displayed in spite of all that. Now that's kind of an exciting hope. That's better than pretending something bad wasn't bad. That's better than trying to be numb or minimizing. That means I could move towards some purpose in my life. So with that as our caveat, with that as our, from this text, we're going to hold on to the truth of Jesus' words that this has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. We're going to hold on to that phrase And now let's revisit our spiritual autism. I realize many of you are saying that doesn't really exist, but just stay with me anyway. Let's go back and revisit our spiritual autism and our three three symptoms of autism. The first, that idea of the inability to have social reciprocity, the inability to connect with community, they, they believe sometimes with autistic kids they may not be able to focus on, uh, they, they may have not have the part of the brain that works very well that lets them see the nonverbal issues in somebody's eyes and face so they can't read the nuances that make relationships work and they have an awkward way of relationships. If you know someone who's autistic or has Asperger's and you've ever talked with them, sometimes you feel like they're not right, they're not looking at you in the same way. Well, that's that symptom of, of, of inability to do community the right way. How would God want to redeem that with us? God would want to redeem that part of us, of spiritual autism, by creating caring communities. What did Jesus say? By this they know you are mine, by the love you have for one another. Of the criticism that the, the world has about us is that we're kind of petty and we're not, we don't get along that well and we split and get and Jesus says, oh by this they'll know your mind for the love they have for one another and so the cure how will Christ's work be displayed in our spiritual autism is he will redeem us to be people that create caring communities. This church needs to be, a broadly speaking, a caring community, but within it there need to be caring communities. Couples that get together. Families that get together. and Kids that get, people that get together and support one another. Church can sometimes be one of the loneliest places to go. I heard someone the other day tell me, I go to church because I know I'm supposed to go, but it's the loneliest place I go. I think that, never let that be said. That's, that's, a, that's living out of spiritual autism. We want that to be redeemed. So the first thing I would suggest to you to redeem our spiritual autism is that God would want us to create caring communities. Second thing I would suggest 
Remember the second symptom was this inability to have good, communica- uh, good conversations and, uh, and, and low uh, developmental ability. And the second thing I would suggest is that we have to start having conversations that matter. I was talking this weekend at the marriage retreat, and I, I said, we just need to have better conversations. And I confessed to him, I live next door to a man. Uh, we've lived there for almost since '03. And last year, his wife passed away. And so I decided as a neighbor, I needed to go and say something to him. And as I'm walking up to his door, I realized that in all those years, I've never had a conversation with him that mattered. In all those years, we've talked about our shrubbery. We've talked about, oh, you got a new car. How's everything going? We've had hundreds and hundreds of hidey-hoes, but not one, one conversation that mattered. And now I was walking up to his door to look a man in the face who just lost his wife and try to offer him something, and I was saddened and embarrassed that I was so spiritually autistic that I had not had any conversations that mattered. What would it be like if God were to redeem us and redeem our poor communication and invite us to have conversations that matter? You know, there seems to be three types of conversations. The conversational floor, if you will, is either going to be a competitive conversation, an informational conversation, or a connecting conversation. A competitive conversation is is a conversation that basically very little important can take place in. It's a conversation where your goal is to win, to get your point across. Um, And often you can tell you're in a competitive conversation when you're just wanting the other person to shut up so you can talk. So it's my turn. I've got something to say. I I was talking to a physician friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about this, and he said, in all my years of practice, I've never had a conversation with one of my colleagues that was not competitive. Rarely will eternal things happen in competitive conversations. You got something to prove, you got something to you gotta get your point across. You gotta rarely will eternal things happen if the if the conversation is competitive. I've got to win. I gotta get my point. Shut up so I can talk. Second type of conversation, informational conversation. Informational conversations can be okay. They, they can be, this is kind of an informational conversation. I'm giving information out. And they can be used by God, but, but typically those aren't the type of conversations that echo into eternity. The third type of conversation on the conversational floor is a cooperative conversation. The goal of a cooperative conversation is to connect. The goal of a competitive conversation is to win or to be heard. The goal of an informational conversation is to, is to get across facts. But the goal of a cooperative conversation is I want to have a conversation that connects me with, with you. A connecting conversation. Now, those sort of conversations can be used in eternity in an incredible way. 
a conversation that connects. Why? What's the simplest way to talk about sin? Sin separates us, right? Sin separates. Primarily, sin separates us from God. That's the primary separation. But also, it separates us from others. Sin separates us from ourselves and from creation. Satan's stories are always about isolate, about isolation and separation. Unhealthy people isolate. Healthy people are alone. God's conversation, God's story is connection, redemption. And so his conversations are connecting conversations where the goal is to connect. Oh, the need to be right has killed so many relationships. So many relationships die on the altar of I've got to be right. Competitive conversations rarely build relationships. You can still stand for truth. Look at the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. You can still stand for truth and have a connecting conversation. So how would God want us to redeem? If the first thing he wants us to do, he wants to have us have caring community. The second thing I would suggest that he wants to do to deal with the symptoms of our spiritual autism is he wants us to have conversations that matter. Conversations that that have something to do with eternal things. Things that matter. Last. What spiritual autism takes you to, just like regular autism does, stereotypical and repetitive behaviors. People getting stuck on something. My son Skylar gets stuck on foods every once in a while. Well, I do too. But he get, he's been stuck on Waffle House for quite some time now. We actually drive around so we don't go past the Waffle House. Because it's a trigger. You know, you guys go someplace and people know you. You go to the barber shop or the beauty parlor or the or the a restaurant that you, you go to. It's nice. And people go, oh, hello, Bob. I go to Waffle House. And they go, it's Skyler and his dad. He's just obsessed. Eats the same thing every time. Only likes yellow food. And a waffle's yellow. You put butter on it, it's double yellow. And he'll get grits, but he'll put cheese on top of it so it's yellow. And he gets obsessed with it. And you sometimes think, what are we doing? We're lost in things that don't matter. And then I think of us at church. And sometimes we just get lost in things that don't matter. We argue about things that don't matter. And we live very purposeless lives. With kind of the principle of we only fight battles we think we can win, so we find little things that don't matter to win. Instead of being people of high purpose. It's almost impossible to live without a sense of purpose. And so we create little purposes if we don't have a big one. How could God redeem our spiritual autism of getting stuck on the wrong things? 
he would do that by a commitment to important pursuit. So the three things that I think God would want us to do to redeem our spiritual autism, caring community, conversations that matter, and a commitment to important pursuits. What would it be like if we repented today of our spiritual autism? And we lived in such a way that the work of God would be displayed in our lives. And if we moved away from our autism, in a way my son can't just choose to move away from him. And we repented. What would it look like if the good work of God was displayed in our lives? And I would suggest to you this day that you would be committed to these caring communities. You would strive to have conversations that matter. And you'd be committed to important purposes. It's been a treasure and a privilege to talk with you this morning. My fellow special needs family of God, we're all in need of his grace. We're all on the back of the bicycle with him pedaling and moving us on. And his gracious hands guide us. And his gracious purpose calls us. And the reason you are where you are is because he wants to display his good work in glory to a dying world through our lives and your life. Let's pray. Father, What would it be if we, if we trusted you that deeply with our lives and the stories of our lives and our families? What would it be if we believed all this? How would we live if, we, if this day we repented in a way that, that had us commit to communities that love you, that reach to others? Commit to conversations that echo into eternity and that thousands of years from now in eternity people would be talking about the things that we talked about for your sake and for your glory and if we lived for your great purposes have us do that this day we pray in the powerful powerful name of your son Jesus amen invite you to stand, if you will, for the uh, benediction, then let's sing together the doxology. We depart with God's blessing. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.